Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 7th of July. This is episode 175. Super packed show today. Like a lot yeah. of a lot of a lot of stuff in it. So Two. a lot of good, good, worthy interviews. One mm. with Chris Kenny, uh, host of the Kenny Report, Kenny on Media, columnist of the Australian, and one with Dr. Bella Debrera, one of the good friends of the show. Uh, start off talking about Chris Kenny interview, I reckon, because uh, well, Pete. You, you set this in motion. Why don't you tell us what's happening? Oh, absolutely. So Chris Ketty interviewed Michael Schellenberger during the week, who, of course, is a former environmentalist who's still an environmentalist but writ- has written a book about how climate change is... Or the threat of climate change is exaggerated. He still thinks we should do things about climate change. He believes that humans are heating the climate... But he says says that it's completely over-egged. Uh, it's a very interesting interview with Chris Kenny, who interviewed Michael Schellenberger during the week. I won't give it away too much, but tune in. And then we had Bella James... Uh, well, I was just going to say, maybe like, because with the Kenny interview, we went straight into like, uh, basically the meat of the interview. So do you want to set up like what Schellenberger talks about maybe a bit, just because I don't think we got super into that in the interview? Okay, sure. No problem. So Michael, as I said, Michael Schellenberger, for environmentalist, you know, he was, he, he, I can't remember exactly what he did, but he assisted the Obama uh, administration on renewable energy. His history is that he was really involved in the climate change thing. Then what happened was he more and more realized that the science was being distorted and that the threat was being over-egged. And eventually, he had to talk to his teenage daughter last year because she was getting so anxious about climate change. And he had to explain to her that, you know, actually, the Earth is not going to end in 12 years. Uh, you know, the, the planet's not going to go extinct. And that sort of set off this thing for him about how he needs to change his views. Um, and yeah, so he's written a book about that. He's been attacked by The Guardian and the Sydney Morning Herald. Kevin Rudd had a crack at him. Uh, and it's a really interesting book, Apocalypse... No, never. Apocalypse Never. Apocalypse Never. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I mean, we're going to be talking to Chris Kenny about the book. So, yeah, Apocalypse Never, if you do want to go out and get it, uh, because, yeah, some really interesting stuff. Then, yeah, Dr. Bella DeBrera, host of the latest podcast series from the IPA. We've been debuting a fair few recently. We've also had The Heretics. So, the new one is um, Five Favourite Books. Dr. Bella mm-hmm. DeBrera talking to, at the moment, uh, the ones that are live for IPA members is Greg Sheridan. So one episode, he's talking about Greg's five favorite books. People are loving the podcast. So we got Bella on to talk about why she's doing it, uh, what she's excited about. Pete and I uh, basically grill her about why we haven't been invited on yet. So you can hear about how she withstood under some fierce questioning. Uh, but yeah, really excited for that podcast. And if you are a member of the IPA, you can now download it. If you're not a member of the IPA, we get into how you can download it. Uh, so, yeah, super fun as well. Now, Pete, we should talk about the big stories that are happening in Australia right now because basically Victoria has been cut off from the rest of the world or slash Australia. Yeah, exactly right. So the first point I was going to get to, of course, was that, uh, as we know, so restrictions are, are starting to be put more and more on Victoria. The Oh, I've just James, lost James for a sec. That's all right. I'm no, I'm still here. I'm still here. He's still there. Okay, that's good. Uh, so, but the, the 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 extra restrictions that have been placed on Australia will have an economic cost to the rest of the country. A Deloitte Access Economics Business Outlook report released on Monday says that growth will contract by three percent in twenty twenty. They said it's Australia's economy has been hit by a COVID-19 sledgehammer and is being held together by lots of sticky tape, which to me was a good image. The recent spike. Um, as I said, in Victorian cases, will hold back the rest of the states. Now, Frydenberg, the treasurer, says that uh, the 
De- Deloitte have actually um, improved their forecast since March, and he's sort of spruiking the positives. Um, but yeah, Victoria will be the hardest hit, and as I mentioned, that will slow down the other states. Victoria, of course, re- uh, relies on a lot of migration on foreign and on foreign students, which is extremely difficult in an age of lockdown and closed borders. So actually, that should, we should get on to the next point there, James, is that some of the borders have reopened and some of them have closed. <laughs> yeah, so basically every other part of the country are celebrating except Victoria, who have now, like there's a hard border closure in New South Wales, which comes into effect tonight. No other yeah. states are going to let a Victorian in for at least the next six months by the looks of it because of the outbreaks in a few six key months. suburbs. Well, no, I'm just speaking in complete generalities. Like, we are gone, but yeah, just full mayo. But the point is that because of an outbreak in a few select uh, suburbs here in Melbourne, state border closures uh, for all of Victoria. So, I mean, you know, I'm talking about what Bridget McKenzie, the National Senate leader, was saying, talking about... uh, Towns in Victoria that don't have coronavirus and people from those towns want to go to other towns which don't have coronavirus, but because of the decisions based off a few key suburbs, they mm. can't. I mean, I'm specifically thinking about Albury, Wodonga, which is a uh, city which is one half on Victoria, one half on New South Wales. So not a whole lot of indicators so far about what travel they can do. You know, where are the police checkpoints going to be set up? But it's going to really hurt people in communities in the country and it's going to hurt as you say jobs here in melbourne again in suburbs that don't have coronavirus like we are still talking while it is serious and you know there are cases rising every three days and stuff like that like we've had two of the last three days over 100 it is still only a few suburbs yeah exactly right and that border that is closed between new south wales and victoria is the first time it's been closed since 1919 since the spanish pan uh spanish flu pandemic and you're exactly right that and we'll get to the flats in a second, which of course are just terrible. But, but the the Victorian government has had so long to think about this now. The fact that there's communities out in the bush that don't have any cases at all aren't allowed to be open is a disgrace. There's no excuse for that. They've had plenty of opportunities to deal with that, and that's one of the major things. And I've got I've got uh, I've got a number of mistakes that the Victorian government's made here, James. Do you want me to run through them? Uh, I'll just keep on one more thing about the borders. So if yep. every time that there are cases that get over 100 or get over 80, if the first response is to close borders, that really dogs so many uh, companies that need border closures to keep operating. Like You think about trucking and uh, stuff like that and tourism. Tourism. But basically, every time there's a slight outbreak, borders close. How how is a uh, company supposed to operate under circumstances like that where it's like, okay, you want to book in this next week? I can't tell you if that's going to be possible. It could be. It is now, but I don't know. I love the the technical term you use there that it's going to dog companies that require it to go it's over. It's your the effect on me. It's your effect <laughs> on me. We didn't actually mention, which we should have, that Queensland has will be finally opening their borders on July 10, except to people from Victoria, which is great. And I think as your your point about the borders is correct, given that you know for months the the federal government line was that it, there's no health risk in borders being open. That's been that, or maybe not months, maybe weeks, maybe a couple of months. So everything feels like just one long time span. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it's just January was only six months ago and it feels 50 million years ago. Oh, it was a simpler time, James. It was a much yeah. simpler time. Uh, so, so yeah, no, it's good for the people of Queensland that that's happening and hopefully it happens in other states more and more. And as we said, fine, if you don't want to let us, let us dirty Victorians in, that's okay. At least open up to other states that are, that are equally doing well. That would be great for people everywhere. All right. So let's talk about those mistakes from the Victorian government. 
Well, the Victorian government has made a lot of mistakes. Firstly, we had the most onerous restrictions in the country, which a number of have clearly proved to be not necessary. And the way that that was conveyed to the people of Victoria was very kind of aggressive. It was Daniel Andrews saying, we will go door to door if we have to, right? So we had, that was the deal. We were going to have the most onerous restrictions in the country, but it would have the best results. Then, of course, we had the Black Lives Matters protest, which uh, was ended up being you know, a huge amount of hypocrisy when you think about the restrictions placed on families and businesses compared to a political process. So that put people's noses out of joint. And of course, you know, quite rightly, it was, it was, incredibly, uh, it was com- incredibly hypocritical. Then we had security quarantine. So we had Daniel Andrews lecturing the whole state, telling us we had to do this and that. Uh, we will go door to door if we have to. And the one thing we really needed him to do was be able to run a decent quarantine setup. Unfortunately, unlike all the other states, which used the police and the army, Andrews used a private security firm. No, you know, there are, I love private enterprise. Maybe there are great private security firms out there, but the ones our government shows clearly weren't very good, as you can see by all the breaches, which are the main driver behind this uptick, according to everything that I've read. And but defund the, other, the police. Defund the police. That's right. Yeah, we just need uh, to defund the police. There's so yeah. many other organizations that can do what they do so well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, spend it on the community. And the other one is the fake multicultural credentials of this government, okay? They will tweet out all sorts of things about, you know, any social justice issue they like. They put the Chinese national flag up on our landmarks, but when they actually need to convey difficult information to different ethnic groups in our community, difficult, complicated, and important information, it seems like they weren't able to do that based on a lot of the reports coming out. It seems like people didn't get that message. So it would be great rather than sort of, you know, conveying your virtue with regards to our multi-ethnic community, you actually did that job a little bit better. So that I would say that is the other mistake of the Vic government. Uh, and that's how we get this horrendous situation with the flats. Yeah, so basically what's happening here in Melbourne, if uh, you know, for our interstate listeners, is that there's these large public housing situations, I'd say about 15, maybe 20 minutes from uh, the heart of the city. And oh, yeah, yeah. not closer. Yeah, oh, uh, and they've been shut down. There's police on every floor, I think it is. Uh, it's, it's impossible to get in and out. Like you've got local mosques that want to give care packages to some of their... Uh, some of their worshippers that are inside these buildings, they can't get in. And I mean, it is, it, it's so, so sad. And you, your heart goes out to these people because they were basically given one day's warning that you can't leave your house for the next five days. So, which would be terrifying. I mean, I kind of like that it's not a statewide ban. Like when, when restrictions first got brought in, it was like, no matter where you are in the state, these are the restrictions. I don't care how many coronavirus situations there are in your state, uh, in your community, these are the restrictions. So at least it is more targeted, but this seems way too heavy. I mean, Gideon Rosner tweeted out that uh, two days ago, there were four cases linked to the towers. And there are 3,000 people in these towers based on these restrictions for uh, four cases that they found. And to put people who are living in public housing who are very, very disadvantaged members of our community to put them in these kind of situations is heartbreaking on one day's notice. And then Gideon also was tweeting out uh, some of the care packages that they have been getting from the government, which look like prison rations. Oh yeah. Some of them were terrible. Some of them were terrible. And, and to put this in context, the only place that has had to do this apart from Victoria is China. There's no other place in the world that I could tell where people were not allowed to leave their apartments at all. You know, even yeah. Spain, which had a really harsh lockdown, you could leave for a small number of reasons. But here in Victoria, we have the same restrictions as people in China. It's terrible. If it's if it's if it's unnecessarily onerous, it's absolutely appalling. If it is necessary, it should never have had to come to this. And you can just see with the way it's been actually implemented 
that there, it's falling short in a number of ways. I read about a bloke who found out on the news. There were people that were left without food. There were pregnant women that were left without baby formula. There were people, you know, who got like jam but no bread and like wheat picks and no milk. Like, you know, that the rations were completely inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, so well, I saw one this? really sad story of a 31-year-old guy, I think it was, but um, just tried to break out. Just uh, He bit a police officer and tried to make an escape attempt. And, I mean, get used to seeing that headline. I mean, 3,000 people in these buildings. I don't reckon that's the last time that's going to happen. No, exactly right. It's terrible stuff. And and there was, you know, there was footage of, like, they were told... So they're all meant to stay in their apartments, right? That's the, the, the rationale. But they have to come down, all jump in the lift and come down to collect food from the bottom. You know, So they're not even distributing the food up into the towers. And then there was this instance where they had to go to, they were told to go to another tower to collect their food. So, okay, so now they're going to another tower. And then when they got there, the police said, no, the food's not at this tower, it's down at the other tower. So yeah, it doesn't a feel like... Show. Yeah, it's a clown show. That's a, that's a effective way of putting it. It's such a... It's such a... It's unbelievable that we have to do this to people and it should never have come to this. We were told that these onerous restrictions would mean that we were kept safe and the, the Andrews government hasn't held up their end of the bargain. For sure. All right. Uh, on that um, note, let's move over to heroes and villains. Let's try uh, to inject some positivity in here. Let's grant the pig freedom to snort the people that have stood up for freedom around the world this week. Pete, who is your hero of the week? Well, my hero is Terry Crews, James. Now, Terry Crews is a very famous actor that everyone in the whole world has heard of. Yep, What's definitely, been in, including Peter Gregory as of 24 hours ago when I told you about this story. So people would know him from uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I think is probably his biggest hit. Uh, he yep. was also the dad on Everybody Hates Chris. And fun fact, has a non-speaking role in Training Day, which I was watching like a few weeks ago. I'm like, that's Terry Crews. <laughs> non-speaking role in what? In this movie, Training Day, which is awesome. Okay. But he's just standing there being huge. And you're like, that guy's about to become one of the biggest actors in the world in eight years, but he doesn't have a line yet. So respect there the game, respect the hustle. Isn't it great to see someone come up through the ranks? Now, didn't you have a non-speaking role once on McAuliffe? Is that right? Uh, I got to speak. I'll have you know. I had a few Really? Lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we had, that is way back. Have we got footage of this? Uh, probably. I could find it. Okay. Yeah. Not for this if show, because got- I'm busy, but... <laughs> For Peter Gregory's well, personal use. We will one day play some footage of James on McCarthy. For sure. Anyway, Terry Crews. Terry Crews tweeted out at a few days ago. He tweeted out a few days ago. He tweeted out on June 30. I've written the date right there. Now, if you are a child... This is what he tweeted out. If you are a child of God, you are my brother and sister. I have family of every race, creed and ideology. We must ensure Black Lives Matter doesn't inform... Doesn't morph into Black Lives Better Now. Terry Crews, of course, an African-American actor. Very nice message about humanity. Uh, you know, all people are equal to matter about the color of their skin. Um, now, in this day and age, James, it's very common for people to be cowards. And once they receive a backlash about a certain thing, to go back into their shell and appease the mob. And it would be very easy for Terry Crews. He's a very successful actor. He's got a lot of coin. It would be very easy for him to say, you know what, I'm just going to collect my money and be quiet. But, but he didn't say that. On July 5, he tweeted out, he doubled down. He said, are all white people bad? No. Are all black people good? No. Knowing this reality, I stand on my decision to unite with good people, no matter the race, creed, or ideology. Given the number of threats against this decision, I also decide to die on this hill. So, Terry Crews, for saying that the contents of your character is more important than the color of your skin, and for saying what most people think and not being cowed by the mob, you are my hero this week. Yeah, Terry Crews is awesome for that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm also thinking back on uh, when he shared his own Me Too experience, which was uh, really like a personal story. And, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love him. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, Peter Gregory, the guy that definitely knew who he was, uh, shared this as his hero of the week. I knew once you once I googled him, I've seen him before. <laughs> Good save. All right, uh, my hero this week is uh, basically. I mean, I just want to shout out every country that is extending out the olive branch to the people of Hong Kong because the Hong Kong the uh, new national security laws that have come in are so sad, and it does seem that bad guy has won in this tale of David versus Goliath. Uh, these new laws are basically. I mean, people are getting arrested for holding pro-democracy flags or pro-Hong Kong independence flags. And it's uh, it's only going to get worse from here. That's the bad reality of it. So good on all the countries that are coming forward and saying, if you are in Hong Kong and you do want to get out, our country will accept you. Uh, so Boris Johnson has announced on Wednesday that uh, 350,000 UK overseas passport holders, along with 2.6 million other Hong Kong residents, would be able to come to the UK for five years, after which point they would be allowed to apply for UK citizenship. Uh, Marco Rubio in Florida, uh, Bob Menendez in New Jersey, John Curtis, Joaquin Castro, all these uh, American congressmen and senators who put forward the bill, the Hong Kong Safe Harbor Act, which would open up a route for asylum for frontline activists immediate danger. Uh, Scott Morrison, he's said that his cabinet's putting the final touches on proposals to protect Hong Kongers himself. So we'll be, you know, keen to see what's happening with that. I can't imagine that Andrew Hastings and James Patterson will uh, support anything less than full support of Hong Kongers. So uh, it's a really sad situation, and it does seem like the end of the road for a free Hong Kong. But it's good to know that uh, these Hong Kong people who stand up for liberty so bravely i mean really risking death uh when you think about international fights for liberty that is really risking it and it's good to know that there are safe harbors for them around the world in places that will respect their right to free speech and protest that's exactly right james and you should also mention that those laws have been extended to include other countries so if you're if you're a chinese national and you go to a protest in australia against the ccp you can be arrested once you return to hong kong so yeah um or if you're sorry if you're a hong kong national so um you know, it impact impacts people out here as well. So that's that's terrible. And it's good that people are being accepted. All right, let's get on to villains. Unless you've got anything more for that, James? No, that's all good. Okay, villains of the week. So this is the fake Extinction fake extinction Rebellion nudie run when Extinction Rebellion said they were going to have a nudie run to protest the end of the earth, but they didn't get completely nude. Roll the tape, please, Saul. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. James, who you got? Uh, so this video comes from... Uh, protest outside of a statue over in the US. So, I mean, we've got a lot of people that listen rather than watch, so I'll try and set this up. So you've got basically a fair few policemen standing around a statue stopping protesters from getting near it. Now, it is a peaceful protest. I don't think anyone's about to throw a haymaker, but there is one guy in front of all the protesters dancing around, uh, well, prancing around in basically a skirt, like he's just wearing a skirt. And this is how he chooses to address the police officers. You know, a hairdresser has to go to school for longer than you do. Oh, Half of you don't even have a college education to be out here making demands about the people. When you can't even read a history book and know where you work from. That is one clip from it. Here is uh, him 15 seconds later. I don't reckon any video better summarizes how the hard left don't care about the working class anymore than that kind of language. That is absolutely disgraceful, and that is racism. That yeah. is racism. Like it just is. Like not 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 you know, oh good intentions, blah blah blah. That's just racism. You're saying that guy should have to have a view. 
because of his, the color of his skin and that is we've got to start calling it out i hate to use language like that actually calling it out we have to create start, start calling what it is he's a racist that guy yeah, exactly. Like, uh, only, only this view can be had by a race is the most racist thing I've ever heard. Like, you know who else thought that people in the deep south of America in the 1930s? Like, that is the only other time in human history. Well, not the only other time in human history, but that is <laughs> there are a few other times. another group of people that genuinely think what that guy thinks. They can sit around and talk about all day about how people belong to different groups. And it's disgusting. Yep. And then the, just the classism of unless you have a university degree, you can't hold a job helping people out yeah. i mean what what the hell does that mean yeah oh and that, i mean i have no idea who that guy is like, the police officer i've no idea what his history is i don't know what kind of person he is but there's a, you know there's a chance he's had to put his own safety second to help other people in the course of his role and to have he's at least up signed it. up for it he's at least signed up for it if he's a police yeah, officer like, that's that's happen. part and parcel yeah, so uh and then to have that absolute muppet just go on like a peanut is uh yeah, yeah. all right you're villain Okay, so the IPA's Dan Wild and Morgan Begg, not the villains, but they are in this story, appeared before the COVID-19 Select Senate Committee and they had this. Uh, so where, where Dan Wild made the point, the reality is that the information that formed the basis of those widespread heavy lockdown measures fortunately was not just proven to be wrong, but wrong by a factor of 50. Uh, and then had this interaction with Senator ALP Senator Katie Gallagher. Just um, do either of you have a background in public health or epidemiology or um, medical degree or anything like that? No. No. Okay. Thank you. And um, um, how is that directly relevant to the the issue of public policy, Senator? Well, it's directly relevant to your um, opinion, I think, of... of, the modelling and the health response and the decisions well, that were taken an by anyway, Mr. Wild, I'm not here. To, I'm not here. I, you are here to answer questions from the, the chair. Thank you, Mr. Wild. And, uh, well, the modelling, if you understood it, was done based on no restrictions being put in no, place. No, it was. No, it Senator, actually, well, we Senator, have had evidence to this committee Senator, that it was. The five thousand was based on a best case scenario with, of, 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 with restrictions. With restrictions, well, the worst case scenario was much worse than that. So that was Mr. Wild. Mr. Wild, thank you, thank you, Mr. Wild. Now, firstly, you don't have to be a doctor to read a report. <laughs> Everyone yeah. could see what the modelling was. You don't have to have gone to you know medical school for ten years. And secondly, uh, Senator, not across your brief. You know, don't go talking the big ones unless you know exactly what the modelling's for. And I, I just love that bit where Dan, you know, was like, no, no means this so uh, yeah is Katie Gallagher an epidemiologist by the way oh yeah exactly yeah I mean already on the do you need to recuse yourself from the senate committee if you unless you have a uh, degree in this yeah no exactly right the the qualifications you need to make these decisions are to be elected by the Australian people right and we can complain about we do complain about politicians a lot but if you're, that's how we decide who makes these decisions, not if you've gone to uni or not. Uh, and you so don't need full- to be an Australia, uh, elected representative to also speak your mind to a Senate committee in which you're invited to. And to yeah. have <laughs> points on... Uh, to yeah. also have points on economics and people suffering. So our only epidemic, should we, like we're talking about how terrible the situation is in the public housing towers right now. Should only epidemiologists be able to say what's going on? Or do you reckon yeah. a few other people might be able to get up and about? Yeah, exactly. Especially, you know, I'm pretty sure she doesn't apply that standard across all the things she talks about. Uh, So for the full clip of that, jump on IPA Facebook and Twitter. Yes, uh, very good. Let's go to our interview with Chris Kenny. 
Okay, we now welcome on to the show columnist at The Australian and host of The Kenny Report on Sky News each weeknight at 5 o'clock and Kenny on Media on Mondays at 8 o'clock. Chris Kenny, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Uh, so I want to talk to you about your interview with Michael Schellenberger on the Kenny Report last week, uh, which I thought was really good. And there was so much interesting stuff, so much vital stuff that came out of it. And so I want to start with uh, how did you come across his work and why were you so excited to get him on the show? Well, I've got to say that uh, I hadn't really heard of him. Maybe I've read some of his stuff in the past or seen some of his TED Talks, but the name didn't ring a bell with me. But I saw some... Uh, commentary on, I think it was Tuesday morning on via social media. I read the piece that he'd posted on Forbes.com on the, the Forbes website, and it was a very powerful piece. But I also read that it had already been taken down. So that immediately uh, uh, piqued my interest, I suppose. Uh, but the, the, the piece really rang true to me because it was about not climate denialism or contesting the science, uh, some of the fundamentals of the science. It was more about the alarmism and exaggeration. He was a bloke who was very much an environmental activist, but was confessing that over the past decades he'd been caught up in a in, in a movement that had consistently exaggerated claims, created alarm, put forward a catastrophic approach uh, uh, that were just not, uh, not true. And that really appealed to me because this has always been my argument with climate change. I've always been very interested in the science uh, and, and read a lot uh, and read widely on it. Uh, people might not realise I was a former parks and wildlife student and wanted to be a park ranger. So I've always had environmental tendencies. But the, 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 it's always concerned me that the real environmental issues and, and, and battles have been completely overwhelmed by this climate alarmism. So you know, I read a bit more about Schellenberger and, and got into it and uh, uh, I did an editorial that night on, on his article and what, he, what the thesis of his book was going to be was coming out that day. But we we're lucky to get onto him straight away and I did that interview the following day. And you're right, it was a fascinating interview, uh, jam-packed uh, with information and insight. So I actually spread it out over two days. It was it was, it was was uh, too good to cut it down. So we ran, uh, ran it in two parts. Uh, but I, can't, I haven't got the book yet. I've, uh, I've ordered it online and I hope to get it soon. So a bit of a scoop for the Young IPA podcast tonight. Ranger Kenny was the initial uh, yes, ambition. Yes, I, and that's not trivial, that scare factor, you know. Like in the article that he wrote in The Australian, he said that one in five school kids in Britain have nightmares about climate change and half the world uh, polled by people thought that humans would go extinct as a result of climate change. So it's really frightening people when people don't have kids and, and things like that as a result of climate change. Uh, anyway, so uh, in your article in The Australian about the interview, um, um, his essay and the controversy, you talked about how it exposed the tactics of love media. Now, what are those tactics and what can we learn from that? Yeah, you know, this was fascinating. I, I wrote a piece uh, on Monday in my regular media column and, and looked at the response to Schellenberger. And he, he's exposed this very well himself. He's written uh, letters to The Guardian Australia and the Sydney Morning Herald to their editors describing his interactions with their journalists and belling the cat, if you like, and offering full interviews like this on Zoom that he can then uh, upload on, um, on, on, on YouTube and the like for maximum transparency now that's a great tactic of his but the, the tactic of the left media of course is that they don't want to engage in debates they disagree with some of the things that schellenberger says for instance uh, he says with the uh, scientific uh, references uh, and references to uh, to uh, reputable research that there is a common myth that uh, climate change has made natural disasters worse 
that's not the case. Uh, he, another point he makes is that the climate change is not a major factor when it comes to bushfires. The reason we're getting more bushfires and more damage from bushfires in places like Australia and California is that more people are building houses closer to bush that isn't cleared, so on and so forth. Now, in, in, instead of challenging these issues, uh, as uh, green left media might want to do, find some scientists to disagree, probe the issues, interrogate uh, uh, Schellenberger or whoever's putting this forward, they instead seek to just denigrate the person putting forward these arguments, uh, undermine them, um, uh, deplatform them to a degree, certainly undercut their reputation. Uh, and that's what they immediately looked like they were trying to do to Schellenberger. He got that from the questions they were sending to him. They were uh, probing uh, who had funded his environmental organisation. All this has apparently been dealt with in the past, and he posts all the donors' links uh, uh, publicly. But they want to try and create a scandal to undermine um, his legitimacy, to question his motives, rather than actually deal with the facts and argue about the facts. I find it frustrating. This is not new. This has been going on for increasingly for decades. But rather than contest the facts, which is where we should all be in a contest, a contest of ideas, um, the left increasingly go to motives and, and try and undermine someone's legitimacy by questioning their motives, something they can never know, something that no one can ever prove or disprove. Um, and, and, and I think it's, 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 it's very evil because it... Um, because it completely undermines a free-flowing, robust public debate around the facts. And anyway, um, uh, Schellenberger's tactic to deal with this was just, was just masterful. He just complained to the organisations, put those letters out publicly so everyone can see it, and offering to give a full interview. They can ask him whatever they like. Uh, the only proviso is he'll have a recording of it and can put it up on YouTube. In other words, he's, he's providing a way to... Uh, to deliver accountability and transparency to the media. And surely no one in the media can complain about transparency and accountability. Uh, you'd hope so anyway. Uh, I want to go back. So Pete says how there's so much fear that's around the world about uh, climate change. And I mean, even my friends, I'm not even talking teenagers, like people in their mid-20s who are my friends, so many of them have completely bought the line that, you know, Greta Thunberg's saying about like we only got you know a few more months or just a couple of years to save the world before ir irreversible damage has been made do you reckon schellenberger is a type of guy who can cut through somebody who was an author of ipcc report somebody who has been on this uh issue for so long for him to start saying the stuff he's saying now do you reckon that's the cut through that this debate needs Oh, that's absolutely why he's cutting through at the moment, why there's so much interest, why there's more power in his argument, I suppose. People like me have been writing this sort of thing for many, many years. Many other journalists have. Uh, but again, the, the left will just dismiss this in the public debate, uh, undermine your motives. They'll say there's a political motive. Schellenberger has that street cred with the green left or the environmental movement because he's been with them for decades and now he's exposing them. And... and, and and plus, his, his message is quite measured. Now, I agree with it or disagree with it, but he says, yes, uh, uh, human-induced greenhouse gas emissions are having an impact on the climate, are warming the planet. Uh, he's just saying it's not a, a catastrophic problem at this stage, that it can be mes uh, managed. 
for instance, of course, he promotes the use of nuclear energy. If you want to reduce emissions, he says, we have this silver bullet. We have emissions-free, reliable energy available. So I think his, his message is not particularly ex extreme. It's just sensible, but it's coming from someone who has been among the the advocates, the, the, the extreme uh, climate alarmists. So that's why, why it carries so much weight. Hey, interesting, when you talk about the fear... He said he was, he, what really woke him up to this was the fear of his own daughter, uh, a young teenage daughter who was so alarmed about what was happening to the planet. And he realised that he was part of a movement that was creating this alarm unnecessarily. I get this from my kids now. You know, I have very uh, two young boys. I have a couple of adult boys who have grown up with all this, but a couple of young boys now. And, and, and they, they get a very warped view of the world, even from, from preschool. My... Um, uh, one of my boys, when he was about four, came home from preschool. This is related. It's not. It, it's not quite climate alarmism, but he came home from preschool at four and told me that, Daddy, that factories are bad. And I said, Why are factories bad? He said, oh, Factories just ruin the um, the planet. They make everything dirty. You know, um, it's, just, it's just such a warped thing to put into a kid's head. I took him through the house and pointed out his Lego and his favourite toys and to the fridge, the ice cream and the cheese and all, all the things he liked. I said, All of this comes from factories. Yeah, you, know, you get a preschool. Kid. Kid knowing where Lego and ice cream come from, they'll come around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it goes to the broader debate. We, we were just from that young age, we we're telling kids uh, that uh, industry is bad, that capitalism is bad, that it's that it's polluting the atmosphere, and that we're killing the planet. Um, uh, and and we wonder why they show a bit of angst and and get all upset about someone like uh, Greta Thunberg wanting to listen to her message. Chris, uh, regular listeners to the show will know that I ask this of a lot of guests. I have this theory that like a lot of the problems, I mean, clearly, as you've just described, come from the education system. There's not many teachers out there who say what you just said. Like, not many teachers say, you know, we should look after the environment. Factories are really important to our way of life. What is the solution to that? Is there a solution to that? Well, educate the solution to uh, poor education is better education, isn't it? I mean, this is, uh, this is uh, our universities need to be teaching people this uh, who then go on and teach and can inculcate children from a younger age. Uh, it, it's a bit of a circular argument, but, but that's, that has to play a role. Uh, the media's got a the, the media is terrible in all of this as well. The sort of general green left thrust of uh, the journalistic class just doesn't want to question these things. People just want to be loved and they want to go with the zeitgeist instead of being skeptical and questioning about everything as journalists should be. They all want to demonstrate their wokeness and and fit in with the crowd. So we've got to break that cycle somehow. Look, I'm um, obviously a generation or two older than you guys. But I can clearly remember my first school excursion. It was in a suburb called Hectorville in South Australia. And we must have been in about year one, maybe year two. And our teacher took us down to a local street uh, that was industrial. In fact, it was called Provident Avenue, uh, a, very, a very apt name, Provident Avenue at, at Glind in South Australia. And we just went from a... a um, there was a, a, a little factory there that was uh, that uh, um, made some sort of widgets. There was like a, a smash repair place. There, there was some little bakery. Uh, just these little sort of small businesses, little window. And, and we were just taught that, these, that there are interesting um, small businesses that make things and create jobs. And this was, and we were showing this as if it was something 
that was good, as it obviously was. Yet, you know, bring that on the next generation. My children have been told that factories are bad. That's that's the 180 degree turn that we've done. And we've, we've got to just get back to some common sense. I want to talk about one piece of feedback from your article and your interview, which uh, came from former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Now, Kevin Rudd said Schellenberger was, uh, <laughs> yes. quote, uh, quote, News Corp's latest golden environmentalist. And uh, this is all stuff from your article. And he decried uh, Schellenberger for having no formal qualifications, which, as you point out, is something he's not the same uh, level of scrutiny he's putting Greta Thunberg under. Now, Kevin Rudd also has recently bought a beachside property. So do you take victory in him probably watching this Schellenberger interview, finally getting around to it and realizing that uh, maybe it's not as bad as he makes it out to be? I just think Kevin Rudd, um, he, he kind of demonstrates the key points about this argument. Um, here's a bloke, he has no formal qualifications in climate science, of course. He says it was the greatest moral, economic and, uh, and environmental challenge of our time. He capitulated on the issue out of a, a political expediency, yet he seeks to take the high moral ground here. And instead, again, instead of challenging any assertion or fact put on the table by Schellenberger, he just attacks the man. Uh, you guys are in Melbourne. You understand Aussie rules. This is what they do. They don't. Uh, they don't play the ball. That is the facts and the argument and the uh, and uh, and the issues and ideas up for debate. They just play the man. So yeah, dismisses Schellenberger. He's not a climate scientist. Um, uh, dis dismisses me. Makes Schellenberger uh, some part of some grand uh, News Corp or Murdoch conspiracy, which is just laughable. I'd never heard of him. He'd never heard of me. We do an interview. Now he's roped up in this conspiracy. Yeah, that's how fast um, and, a conspiracy is, is. Even the co-conspirators yeah. don't know who each other are. It's incredible. But but you got to remember, you got to check ourselves. We laugh at Kevin Rudd, but. This is a bloke who used to be Prime Minister of Australia, and this is a bloke who still struts the global stage with various think tanks and the like, and says he's got something that could contribute to the debate. At the drop of the hat, he's interviewed on the ABC 730 or whatever, some oracle, yet he can't engage in the debate. He sees someone that challenges uh, the alarmism uh, of the moment that challenges the zeitgeist uh, with, with, with references to all sorts of scientific, scientific research and facts. And instead of engaging in the debate, he just, uh, he just besmirches the man and says he must be part of some conspiracy. And yes, the ultimate hypocrisy then is the very next day we read he's bought himself a $17 million beach house in Queensland to go with his townhouse in Brisbane and his apartment in New York. I mean, Kevin, Ego, uh, Kevin Rudd, Freudian slip, as I mentioned in that piece, um, Kevin Rudd would have a carbon footprint the size of his ego, and that is considerable, yet he pretends to lecture others on this stuff. Uh, the hypocrisy is one thing, but what's really, uh, what's really amazing is just the lack of intellectual rigor, rigor the, 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 um, the denial of debate. These people will not debate the issues. They only want to deal in emotion and motives and point scoring. All right, Chris, do you, um, so just to speaking more generally, do you see uh, the policies, so we've got a lot of policies moving towards renewable energy in Australia and the Western world, do you see them losing momentum post-COVID and all the challenges that will provide or do you think it'll, uh, it'll keep going full steam ahead? 
Look, I don't think it'll make much difference. I've, I found it a bit laughable over the last few months. People are saying as we come out of the COVID recession, uh, it's a chance to change the world. Yeah, we're suddenly going to deliver all this economic reform that was, we've squibbed the last 10 years. And others are saying this is our chance to go with renewable energy. Uh, I don't think that anything's going to change. We're, we're going to go on the same trajectory. I think that the one thing that does change is we have less money to play with. Uh, and therefore, yeah, there's perhaps a perhaps a better chance of more sensible energy policy that is less uh, government interference, less subsidies uh, for renewables because we won't have uh, the money. Uh, so uh, hopefully, uh, if anything, it'll drive people back to the fundamentals, and that is that um, what what has lifted hundreds of millions of people uh, out of poverty around the world in the past uh, century, uh, what has delivered uh, uh, prosperity to, to, to so many countries uh, over that same period, it's, it's been uh, cheap, reliable energy. That, that's been the key. Cheap, reliable energy uh, has, has delivered prosperity. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, all those countries that have lifted themselves out of poverty through cheap, reliable energy then over time have reduced their uh, their um, their energy footprint, if you like. They reduce their emissions. They reduce their energy intensity. It's, a, it's these things. It, it's a natural progress, uh, and um, it's a bit like the popular. You know, as countries get uh, cheap, reliable energy, they deliver prosperity. Their populations become more educated. They uh, look after the environment better. They reduce their carbon footprint footprint they reduce their population growth and this this is played out everywhere so it's it, it remains the answer and um, and we're actually slowing down the progress uh, of countries in Southeast Asia and in Africa by trying to impose on them our sort of um, moral games over over renewable energy uh, what they need is cheap reliable energy it worked for us um, we should let it work for them yeah, could have said it better myself. Uh, Chris Kenny, columnist at The Australian. Check him out on The Kenny Report, Sky News each weeknight at 5, and Kenny on Media Mondays at 8. Chris, thank you so much. Fridays at 8.30, mate. I've been bumped by Alan Jones, so that means oh, you need to update the Friday uh, at 8.30. Well, the website needs to be updated, dang it. It sure does. <laughs> Thanks for talking to, to me, guys. Right, thank you. We now welcome back onto the show one of the great Great friends of the Young IPA podcast. Ciao, Bella. Dr. Bella Debrera, Director of the Foundations of Western Civilization Program. Welcome back to the show. Ciao, ciao, ciao. Uh, now, Bella, this is exciting. You've got a brand new podcast of your own, a fellow entry into the podcasting world of the IPA. That is the Five Favorite Books podcast series. Now, uh, before we get into it, I do want to read out the membership offer because, you know, we've got a lot of listeners to this show that aren't members of the IPA. They want to hear this podcast right now because it's not available to the public yet. It's only available to IPA members. So all five episodes that are currently live are the IPA's new Five Favorite Books podcast series featuring Dr. Bella Debrera talking with Greg Sheridan about his five favorite books released exclusively to IPA members on Monday, the third of, uh, on the 3rd of July, sorry. Sign up as an IPA member now to gain access to all five episodes of the podcast series and be invited to be an ex uh, invited to an exclusive member event on the 13th of August where you can ask Greg your own questions about his favorite books. We also send you a free copy of the first book, The Year of Living Dangerously by Christopher Koch, signed by Greg and Dr. Bella Debrera. You get all this plus the benefits of 12-month IPA membership for only $55. Head to ipa.org.au now. Now that... It's just a great deal. I don't care who that you are. Bargain. That is that a great is a deal. If I wasn't Sabella, a member of the IPA, I would be joining. Yes, absolutely. Sabella, five favorite books podcast series. What can people expect from this podcast? 
Um, they can expect um, five very um, interesting, in-depth and um, uh, informative discussions about Greg Sheridan's top five favorite books. So it was, he's, he has an extraordinary library, he has extraordinary knowledge, and it was really difficult for him to actually go away and come up with five books. He thought about it a lot because he has a lot of books that he really loves. Um, so the, the, the books that he did choose were all really, have all been really, really important in his life. And that was what I found really interesting. They've all really formed him. And actually, since having spoken to him about the books, I now read his, his, his pieces in the Australian and I go, okay, I can see the influence of even more. I can see the influence of, um, of these authors that he reads. So, so look, I think they're really interesting conversations. Um, I certainly learned a lot because I'd hardly read any of the books that, that he mentioned, because obviously it's, you know, there's millions of books that could have been anything. So yeah, it's great. It's a, I think it's a really interesting um, chat. So, so when like Greg does it, oh, sorry, bet you go, my bad. No worries. So when Greg says we need 200 long range missiles to provide a deterrent independent in the United States to face the Chinese Communist Party, you can see, you can see those books coming through. Not, not so much in that, not so much in that I'm talking about. That's just classic not, Woodhouse. Not, not really sort of in his policy, not in his, more, more in his expressions. You know, that there are some, he just called uh, Dan Andrews desperate Dan, I think, in an article yesterday. And there's, there's some, there's some sort of fake phrases that he uses. And sometimes it's a bit funny or it's a bit cheeky. And it's definitely Woodhouse. It's definitely, you know, it's this, or he uses a lot of paradoxes because he loves Chesterton. So obviously Chesterton was called the Prince of Paradox. And he's, he's taken that on in his writing. And he, he, he admits to that. It's not like um, it's something that he's trying to keep secret. It's, it's, but you know, if you're going to be influ influenced by anyone, it should be these great authors. So is it kind of like a Desert Island Disc situation? That's what I'm hearing, where you're not talking about just the books themselves, but also the impact they had on you and stuff like that? Oh, definitely. That's why, I mean, that's what I was sort of saying at the beginning. It was a bit like, you know, if you're on a desert island, which would be the, the, the books that you take with you. But it's more, which books have influenced your life? Which is, what's been really important? Um, and I don't want to give away the first one, but in the, the first discussion about the year of being, living dangerously, like that literally changed the course of his career because he picked that book up in the airport bookshop, um, just sort of looked at the looked at the looked at the back looked at the back cover and thought, okay, this would be a good thing to read on the plane. And it completely changed his the way he went with his with his journalistic career. And he ended up, you know, focusing on on Asia and Southeast Asia because of this book. And if he hadn't done that, what would he have done? So it's it's a really interesting um, way of, of of talking about these 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 works, like how much they that impact your life. That is a great job at selling the podcast, Bella, because now I really want to listen to it and hear how it influenced him in, a, um, in more yeah. detail. And also, Bella, what has motivated you to make this podcast? Apart from sort of you know being told to do it as part of your job, what is it <laughs> about this that you're excited about? Yeah, and instructions are a great motivator, aren't they? Um, so look, everybody knows what's going on at the moment. We've had we've had weeks of seeing this uh, this attack on on us. Western, the culture of Western civilization, you know, the, 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 the questioning of whether the culture that has been produced by Western civilization is any good, um, the pulling down of statues and, and, and the opposite of, of making lists of things we should do rather than making lists of things we shouldn't read and that we shouldn't watch. So let's do something positive and let's go back to the literature and this great canon that the West has produced um, and start talking about it again because it's really important to be, to be talking about it because if we don't talk about it they've kind of won haven't they because they've cancelled it by not talking about it we're going along with it with the cancelling of the culture so i think that's a motivation and i think and and it's it's a double 
whammy. So you're, you're getting an interesting conversation with a really, really well-read person in Australia who knows their books. You're getting to know part of the Western canon that you might not have known. And you're also um, saying these books are worth talking about. They should not be cancelled. Awesome. Uh, so the five episodes that are currently live for IPA members are all Greg Sheridan. And going forward, you're going to be talking to a lot of Australia's leading intellectuals and all that. I mean, the second my dad gets a whiff of this podcast in existence, he will be knocking down the door trying to get in on this. I know. I can't, like wait about, to, I can't wait to talk to him. Yeah, it'll be his 5,000 favourite books. Yeah, now, but you know, the one I'm, thing it's going to be limited. Five, five, no more than five. <laughs> uh, he'll find a way, but trust me. Uh, <laughs> What I'm worried about with this book, uh, with, this, with this podcast series, mm. is that you're going to be talking to so many of Australia's leading intellectuals, but I doubt there's going to be a lot of time for Dr. Bella Debrera to talk about... <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Dad. Just oh, he's gone. I think James has run out of battery. That's all right. I, I, can, I can take it from here. If he comes right. back in, we'll let him, we'll let him continue. But, um, yeah. you know, it's probably for the better, you know, that James has sort of yeah. dropped down. Yeah, I mean, he sort of ruins it anyway, doesn't he? That's exactly that's exactly right. So I think what he was going to ask you if I could if I can use my powers of seduction. Oh, he's back! Oh, here he is. He's back. That's all right. I'll quickly ask it anyway because it might take him a while to get his audio back up and running. No, yeah, I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, uh, can I can I just mention what happened there? You're not going to believe it. It was a dad calling me. <laughs> oh, he's, he's heard a whiff and he's demanding when to know when to come on this podcast. Straight in. That straight is straight uncanny. In. That is uncanny. Very very uncanny. By the way, like iPhone, you know, people working at Apple who are listening to this podcast, can you guys figure out the difference between uh, decline and hang up or hold and hang up? Because no matter what I press, it seems to answer a call in the middle of an interview. This is not the first time it's happened. Anyway, what did I miss? I was just I was just uh, fumbling around and actually just getting to actually asking the question. So, oh, okay, very cool. Uh, so well, you know, who should fumble their way through the last five seconds? We're keeping I reckon this you, all you started. We are keeping all of this. Uh, you now, started. so Bella, you're going to be interviewing a lot of Australia's finest intellectuals. I mean, Dad's already calling me, trying to get on the damn show. But I'm worried that Bella's not going to have time to talk about her favourite books. So, Bella, what are your five favourite books? Yes, okay. So, luckily, I prepared for this. Luckily, I prepared for this because I, um, I do have some odd, an odd selection. So, number one has to be the William books by Richmond Crompton. Um, and I grew up on those. They are the funniest, the funniest books about, um, I don't know if you've read them or heard of them, but they're kind of about a, a William who's an 11-year-old boy and it, they're just brilliant stories and I, 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 I collected them all as a child and they, they really did actually inform the, my humour and the way I write now. It's very William and I thought I was like William as well because he was quite, he was a bit naughty and he was always, anyway, so it's William Richmore. Don't stop there. I want to hear more about that. Uh, William, you have to read it. Um, I love the Pickwick Papers, Dickens. Um, Dickens was very, very funny and I think he should have stuck with comedy and, and the Pickwick Papers is just hilarious. Even now, um, it was written as a series, the character's are just so memorable and they're so funny and it's still you know humor changes a lot some things are really not funny now that were funny 200 years ago or even 50 years ago but pickwick papers is still really funny and um you can see the the later dickens where he kind of adventures in and and, and gets into the sort of um you know that typical dickensian london of the slums and the story of the the the, the, the families with um um you know children dying and things like that and that's so you have this very funny series and then interspersed with the, the dickens that you know but um pickwick papers is definitely up there i also like jane eyre which is probably not that interesting but we've talked about jane eyre on the podcast before but it's still a book that i love to read um and i also love the um even wars bridehead brideshead revisited which is um for me even wars best book 
which I didn't actually want to point out to Greg Sheridan because I didn't want to argue with him on the podcast because his favorite war is sort of on a trilogy, which is one of the discussions that we have. Um, so we disagreed a bit on that, but that's fine. You can't agree with everyone about <clears throat> what their favorite books are. Um, and what's the other one? So that's, um, oh yes. Um, there's also a, a book called Molesworth, which is another very, very funny English humor about um, a, a fictional boy in a really dysfunctional middle-class boarding school in England. And there's very famous characters from that as well. It's very funny, but maybe people listening to this podcast haven't read, read it, but those are my top five. So none of your own books made the list, Bella. I just... <laughs> no, can you imagine if I'd put my own books on the list? Because you've, you've written like five books, haven't you? Imagine what type of person I would be if I put my five books as my top favorite five books. It would be amazing if one of your podcasts with someone mentions one of their own books and you've just got to sit there going like, I can't laugh at this, but let's continue this <laughs> tell conversation. Me, tell me why your own book is your favorite book. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so that's my list. All right. Very good. Um, yeah. Like with the Dickens being funny, no one ever has written lovable oafs better than Charles Dickens. Like just, you know, oh, people yes. that aren't exactly the most intelligent, but damn it, you love him anyway. Like he was number one, always yeah. will be. Um, and and the, the the characters in the Pickwick paper papers, you can very you can see that that sort of they're they're always a bit fat. There's a, you know there's a, there's a, and they've got the three piece suit on and they get into all sorts of trouble and they're not very bright. But you just but but and he, he really plays to the audience well because the characters become very predictable and they end up in terrible situations and you know how they're going to respond and it's funny. It's like that. Anyway, I recommend the Pickwick papers. Have you read it, Bolt? I've not read Pickwick, but uh, I'm just thinking about like uh, Nicholas Nickleby and uh, Great Expectations. Just like so many good supporting characters, that, yeah. you know, yeah. heart of gold kind of stuff. Uh, now, I can't speak for Pete, but I'm noticing, I've been looking through my emails. I am yet to be invited to coming on Five Favorite Books. So do I need to talk about my email service provider about uh, spam filters or something? I yeah, can't imagine I think it's going why. Into junk, I think it's going into yeah. junk inbox. I mean, I'm sure, Pete, you'd be fired up about this just as much as I am. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a lot to say. I've got a lot of books. I'd find it difficult to pick five, but I have noticed that I haven't been invited yet. But that's all right. There's still time. Uh, you never know what's going to happen in the future. You'll get the you'll get the the, the knock on the door. Don't worry. <laughs> knock on the door. Yeah, but will it be to be on the podcast? <laughs> Uh, I like that. I like the idea of someone knocking on your door to tell you to go on a Zoom interview. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> then you have to leave for social distancing. <laughs> you live in very strange times. No, yes. it's going to knock on the door and leave the note outside like an Uber Eats parcel. <laughs> and it's just the Zoom code. All right. Yeah. Uh, so I'll read out the promo one more time because if you're an IPA member now, you already have access to this podcast and all five episodes and they're great. If you're not an IPA member... If you sign up as an IPA member now, you gain access to all five episodes of the podcast series. You get access to an exclusive member event on the 13th of August where you can ask Greg your own questions about his favorite books. Uh, you also get a free copy of the first book, The Year of Living Dangerously by Christopher Koch, which we now learn changed Greg Sheridan's life, damn it. Mm. And Bella's holding up yeah. a copy right now for the audience. And uh, you get that signed by Greg and Bella. You get all this plus a membership uh, benefits of a 12-month IPA membership for only $55. Get on that deal. Dr. Bella DeBera, a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you too, Chris and Dr. Bella DeBera. Make sure you're downloading that podcast uh, because it's awesome. All right, we've got some fair few stories that we want to cover off at the end here. And I guess like 
Top of the show was just a bit heavy, so when we wanted to laugh about Kanye West running for president, we thought it'd probably be better off in a funnier segment. So let's mm. talk about it now, because Kanye West is running for president. He we tweeted out... <laughs> one day, July 5th, uh, we must now realize the promise of America by trusting God, unifying our vision and building our future. I am running for president of the United States, American flag, hashtag 2020 vision. Pretty good tweet, by the way. I like 2020 vision as a campaign slogan. Can't believe no one's run out with that yet. Um, and uh, Elon Musk supported him as well because the world is a meme. And Pete, what are your thoughts? Well, you don't want to be too sort of... Uh dismissive you know like anything can happen these days anything can happen and it's, it's kind of sweet that like you know ben chifley was a train driver ronald reagan was an actor maybe a rapper can be the president of america james like let's think about that for a second let's for a second think he actually wins what will america be like uh just uh, like that's full uh the line between america the country and america the meme just becomes one line it's not parallel it's now just the one line yeah. i don't know i will be flipping uh no, actually, you know what? I'm going to be ex- excited because this means that Kanye's got a new album coming out. So I'm excited. Oh, for yeah. That. <laughs> I was going to ask you that, actually. Like, it must publicity. be like three weeks from now, he's channeled all of his political visions into his new album, and that's going to be it. And then I get to listen to a new Kanye album. So everything works for me. So that's your call. Your call is this is pure publicity. He's not going to actually go through with it. I mean, uh, as important as it was him wearing the MAGA hat and stuff like that, uh, there was an album very shortly afterwards. So I'm just noticing the marketing campaign is when Kanye starts doing stuff like this, there's usually an album. Okay, fair enough. I would just point out, so Joe Hockey on Sky said that he would be really damaging to Joe Biden if he ran. That's the serious political point to make. And Kim oh, Kardashian. for sure, absolutely. It, that, like, if if he actually makes it all the way through November and he crosses out all the forms, it, it is bad for the Democratic Party. I just don't think it's going to happen because it's an album launch. <laughs> I probably ultimately don't think it's going to happen either. But I sort of, you know, I think it's good for democracy if it does. Yeah. All right. What are we doing? Moving on. Uh, yes, we've got your. I, I can never remember the name of this segment because it's about forty words long, but it's important and it's good. So, Pete, talk us through it. It needs work. Stop tearing down the statues of people that have done more for racial equality than you ever will is the name of this segment. Free trade. This bloke is an astonishing human being, you know? Wipe the cheesels off your fat guts, move out of your parents' house, and actually open a history book before you rip down this bloke's statue. I mean, it's actually astonishing. The people who rip down this bloke's statue are not good enough to shine his shoes. So who I'm talking about, of course... Me. Uh... Who am I talking about? Frederick Douglass, freed slave and abolitionist. And this guy, he was a slave, mate, and he escaped from being a slave. And the, the standard of his, uh, you know, oratory and writing and activism, he traveled not just across America, but around the world. He's an African-American guy, obviously, about how slavery was bad. He was completely persuasive uh, and, and, and convincing. And he was part of the, one of the main people, well, not one of the main people, he was one of the people behind slavery actually getting abolished I'd now, go I'd go one of the main people you don't have Frederick Douglass saying what he was saying I think that gets delayed a bit longer than it was probably I was just being safe because I didn't really know so I'm glad you came in there <laughs> um, so the thing what happened was his, his he gave a speech on July the 5th 1852 before slavery was abolished it was abolished in 1865 about how Independence Day didn't mean much to slaves because they weren't free in their own Land, He said, a day that reveals to him more than all the other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. He made that speech in Rochester, New York, which was the site, the site of this uh, statue where the Underground Railway went through 
uh, and some absolute peanuts ripped it down uh, during the week. And you just think, this bloke is one of the most astonishing human beings you could possibly imagine. And you, I think you have to have a long hard look at yourself. Yeah, because anyone that thinks that these uh, statue topplers are, you know, the new historians and this is the new counterculture, legitimately no one knows who this guy is who tore down a statue. Because if you did, you wouldn't. Yeah. Oh, there's, if, yeah. There's no- they genuinely think that's an old white guy and he probably owns slaves, so therefore his statue goes down because it's a statue and they're the only statues we have is those people. Yeah. It, it just absolutely out the window goes any idea that this is some kind of legitimate, you know, movement. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, parts of it are legitimate, obviously, but yeah, unbelievable. Uh, so I'll keep you posted. Unfortunately, these kept coming up, so we'll have to keep doing this segment until it stops happening. Yeah, uh, unfortunately so. All right. Uh, now, Pete, you also found a story about some art critics. Oh, that's right. Two in a row. Okay. Four of, the, uh, four of the five young critics hired by the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age in May to write about the arts have either quit their jobs or reduced their hours to protest the fact that they're all white. So there's five of them. And four of the, two of them have fallen on their sword completely. Two of them are going for a job share arrangement because they're all white. Uh, they say our resignation is in opposition to the lack of diversity in the selection, which resulted in the all-white group of peers. Uh, we all miss out if there's only one voice in the room. So <laughs> it's kind of like if you guys think you're all the same voice, you, I mean, I don't know, because you're all from the same race. Like that actually sounds pretty racist to me. And it's also like probably not the greatest writers if you're all got the same voice. Uh, but I just think they got these jobs in May to write about art. Like at any time, it's hard to get a job to write about art, let alone in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a recession. So guys, I mean, I guess on the flip side, I'm like, hey, at least they put their money where their mouth is. Yeah, that's, that's my case. Think. Like that's literally the words I was going to say is, you know, we talk about a lot of brave stands. This, this is legitimately taking food out of your mouth for a brave stand. So I, I got to say credit to them. <laughs> I'm not saying credit to him. It's inherently racist to think people of all different races are the same, have the same voice. Uh, no, but I'm going but, like, sorry, we talked to Brendan O'Neill about what's happening in the New York Times where they had that article that, you know, apparently endangered uh, black writers in the New York Times. Like that was the, you know, if you're a writer in the New York Times, you said this hurts our staff members. No one quit. And I just thought that's the height of hypocrisy. If you genuinely thought that it was dangerous and you were working for a racist industry, why would you not quit? At least these guys are quitting. Yeah, I'll give it, as I said, I'll give the credit for, because I always, when it, you always think of like, you know, these people, it's like, oh, okay, well, you give up your job, you know. It's yeah. like, uh, but I don't think it's a very good thing to do and I think they will regret it, although maybe they'll get a good job somewhere else. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that to everyone's attention. James, Prince Harry. Yeah, so we've had uh, another one from the classic Prince Harry file. So uh, he's presenting an award and it's this, uh, he's in LA and he's presenting an award and well, I'm I'm just going to play the clip. So this is Prince Harry talking about institutional racism. My wife said recently that our generation and the ones before us haven't done enough to right the wrongs of the past. I too am sorry. Sorry that we haven't got the world to the place that you deserve it to be. Institutional racism has no place in our societies, yet it is still endemic. Unconscious bias must be acknowledged without blame to create a better world for all of you. So yeah, that is Prince Harry talking about the dangers of institutionalised privilege and racism. <laughs> Prince Harry of the British royal family. Yeah, a real, a real log cabin story, that one. You know, brought up, up by his bootstraps, that Prince Harry. Uh, Do you ever see a former partner and just think, man, I got out 
at the right time. I'm sure that's what the British royal family are thinking right now, which is like, look, <laughs> we, that could have got so much worse. We got out. We got out at the best time to do that. We made the deal yeah. when we need to. Yeah, yeah. Timing is everything in life. I, I always see Harry, and I just think it's story as old as the hills. You know, young guy. He's a great guy. He's full of life. Uh, he, you know, everyone likes him, but he gets a misses and he completely changes. And I think that's exactly what's happened with Prince Harry. He used to be like, bring back trash bag Harry, you know? He used to play nude, bloody, what's it called? Poker in Las Vegas, you know? Now those, look days at are, those days are long gone. Uh, it's called growing up. Oh, I, don't, right. no, I was going to make that point. Like, you know, I'm not saying, like often when people get into a relationship, they grow. Uh, anyway. Uh, him saying like that one sentence he says unconscious bias should be acknowledged without blame I reckon without blame were the only words in that entire speech that he wrote <laughs> just, <Yeah. laughs> like, let's let's just stop blaming let's acknowledge it but let's not point fingers because yeah, how yeah, many yeah. times a day do you reckon Prince Harry gets caught up for something I reckon that it wouldn't even be what was it without blame I reckon it would have been just like and blame or something like that like just without the without he added yeah. the without yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like he just needed, he just needed something that was his. Yeah, Genuinely, yeah. how many times a day do you reckon he goes about just regular conversation and gets pulled up? Yeah, oh, I think I think it would happen all the time. And I really want listeners to to recognise unconscious bias is an absolute fairy tale. Do the research. Implicit association test. The thing that is based on is completely, what's the word? So that's the research mechanism. It's completely like unreliable. I won't go into it now because there's not much right, time college left. college boy. <laughs> but Google it. No, because it's important. The whole thing relies on this unconscious bias thing. Like, yeah. not every, most people aren't racist anymore, but everyone's a little bit racist and they can't help it. But the actual research used to justify unconscious bias is garbage. Legit, can you send me that? Because that's interesting. All right, that is yep. it for the show this week. Thank you to Dr. Bella DeBerra and to Chris Kenny. Make sure you're uh, becoming an IPM member if you're not already. And if you are an IPM member, be downloading five favorite books because it is an exciting podcast series we're all super proud of it and it's awesome to listen to a lot uh, of courage from the leadership of the ipa as well to go back to the podcast well after this dumpster fire of a podcast that goes out every week so good no, stuff we from are the we are the lewis and clark of podcasting we've trekked forward and we found new <laughs> lands and other people are coming forward and settling yeah i'm not sure we invented podcasting but um yeah i, I, I take your point all right, uh, so if you do like this podcast, if you don't think it's a dumpster fire, as Peter Gregory so eloquently put it, <laughs> make sure you're leaving us a review. Tell your friends and family about the show. Keep spreading the word. And uh, we'll see you guys next week.